Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So good to be together with y'all and those who are online. Just so glad that we can come and worship together and that we can uh, now hear God's word. I want you to open up to Acts chapter eight, if you would. Um, just a quick poll before we get into anything here. Um, how many of you love to cook? Okay, less than in the last service. How many of you cook so you don't starve? Okay, how many of you don't cook and you just let other people cook for you so you don't starve? Okay, yeah. I love to cook, I really do. Um, another question, how many of you believe, as the Bible says, that um, breakfast is the best kind of food there is? And the rest of you, no, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> breakfast food to me is where it's at. Um, yesterday I was making some, I don't know if, what you, like just breakfast, breakfast potatoes, is that what you call it? Home fried potatoes, whatever. And, and uh, man, chopped up the, the potatoes and, you know, put some other stuff, seasoning, seasoning and stuff like that. And if you know anything about cooking at all, um, you know, like garlic, if you're going to, how many of you love garlic, by the way? Okay, not unanimous, but it should be. Um, garlic, you, when you're going to chop up some garlic and add it to a, a dish, you typically don't put it in right at first because in that dish, it'll burn, it burns really quickly, Right. So like a complete rookie yesterday, like I, I, you know, I cooked the dish that I was making, the potatoes and stuff, and then I threw the, you know, towards the end, I threw the garlic in, and, uh, and then I got distracted. And uh, did a few things, then I came back, and the garlic, it wasn't like totally ruined, but it was just way too done and crispy and had a little acrid taste in it. You know, like the potatoes were good, but they weren't as good as they should have been, right? Because the, the, the stuff stayed in the pan too long put all the ingredients in the pan and it stayed in the pan way too long. You're like, Travis, why are you talking to me about breakfast? This has nothing to do with the Bible. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Here's the real deal here. The church can often be the same way. We come here to the church, whatever that is, you know, the church building, and we congregate together and we are together, but sometimes we stay in the pan too long. Sometimes we're, we're here too much. Sometimes we get all of ourselves together as the ingredients, but then we let ourselves stay in the pan too much and don't realize that it's actually the goal is to have the ingredients in the pan for a certain amount of time, but then you gotta take the ingredients out of the pan, you gotta take the food out of the pan and serve it out, distribute it, and invite people to the table. But we like to be here together. We like to congregate, and that's a good thing. It's a needed thing. But when we are so stuck on being at the church building and being together with other people who know the Lord, we forget what the purpose that we're here for is, which is to be distributed out, to be sent out, to invite other people to the table as well. Breakfast, potatoes, and Jesus. Last week, uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter seven, we saw the story of Stephen, the first martyr. And we saw how God blessed Stephen, not by keeping him safe, but by keeping him faithful to the mission, even unto death. What an amazing story. And this week, we read the story of Philip in chapter eight. He's another deacon. This is not the disciple Philip, but deacon Philip. He was a man who was chosen along with Stephen to be someone to take care of the needy amongst the Christians. And we get to see Philip not being faithful to death, but being faithful in life as he's living and as the Holy Spirit's leading him, he's obeying at every single point. And we'll see God lead Philip to Samaria as, uh, as Jesus said to his disciples in the very uh, first part of Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the city where it was. In Judea, that's kind of the county. In Samaria, this is like kind of another county region of people that, man, the Jews were not friends with and then to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing the gospel now moving out of Jerusalem into Judea, and now we're seeing it with Philip move into Samaria. And then we get a little hint of the ends of the earth because later on in the chapter, he meets this man from Ethiopia who will trust Jesus. 
Now, after today, we're gonna push pause on Acts for a little bit. It's been an amazing, to me, journey through Acts, these first eight chapters. But in the book of Acts, there comes a seam right now where we get a little hint of Judea, Samaria, and a little hint of the ends of the earth. But then in chapter nine, we're gonna see Saul become Apostle Paul, and that is where the to the ends of the earth part of Acts begins. And we're gonna push pause before we get into that. And in a couple weeks, we're gonna be in 1 Peter for a little bit. And then we've got some stuff in November. And then we've got Christmas. Wow, that's coming. I can't believe it. Woohoo! Uh, I love Christmas. And then, and then hopefully at the beginning of the year, we're gonna jump back into Acts, starting with Paul and the ends of the earth. But right now, we wanna finish up this portion of, of Acts where we see the disciples being obedient to the call of Jesus. Now, persecution has just happened. Stephen has been killed and persecution has broken out against the church in Jerusalem and so it causes them to scatter. It causes them to go out into the rest of Judea and Samaria and then a little bit now we're looking like it's gonna be the ends of the earth and this expansion of the gospel is happening because of persecution. See, people tend to congregate inward, don't we? You find your crew and you stick with your crew and that's all we ever wanna be with is our own crew, right? And people tend to do this. God knows that, so he allowed persecution to happen so that the outward expansion of the gospel would continue. The people of Jesus need these sometimes painful, oftentimes painful triggers to leave the nest. You and I sometimes need triggers to leave the nest, don't we? Don't you? Because here's the truth. The kingdom of Jesus is a decentralized movement of obedient disciples. A decentralized movement of obedient disciples. You notice in Acts that we constantly see expansion and going out, not constant congregating and coming in. Our modern church especially in America, I think, has been captive to a, what you might call a come and see pattern for far too long. My church is a great church. They do really cool things there. And hey, I wanna invite my friends and I'll get them to church. I'm not gonna talk to them about Jesus. We'll let the pastors do that. Did that hit a sore spot for you? It does for me. Come and see. Hey, come, come to my church Just come to my church. If I can just get them in the doors, then I'll let the professionals finish the job. I'm sorry if that sounds offensive. Sometimes truth is offensive, isn't it? That's this come and see thing. And I think we've been in that pattern only for far too long. Some have called it the attractional church. Attract people, get them here by fun, great, amazing things that'll, you know kind of scratch their itch and then try to kind of slide in the gospel on the side. Some have called that the attractional church, but I think it's actually becoming the extractional church. And here's what I mean by that. I didn't make that up, by the way. I read that in a book. But I think it's true. We have so much going on in our churches to come here, do something here with other Christians on this campus. You don't live here, but keep coming here on Sundays and all through the week. Keep coming here, being here. And what happens is you're here so much that you get extracted out of the place God has actually placed you to do the mission. And it becomes extractional. That is not the model that Jesus set up for his church. Our gathering together as the family of Jesus is so important. Don't hear me wrong. This, what we're doing here, is so important. It's necessary. We need to. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Worshiping together and praising God in front of each other. That's what praise is. You can't praise God by yourself. You can worship him. But can you praise and tell other people and say, this is how great he is. Can you do that by yourself? Not really. Praising him together, learning, being sent out together. That's all needed and so beautiful. But it should never remove us from our place of mission. We come and gather so that we can scatter together into the places that God is moving. Let's read Acts chapter eight, starting at verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Who did he proclaim to them? Christ, Jesus. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was so much joy in that city. Philip is doing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same kind of miracles that we saw who doing not very long before this. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. But there was a man named Simon, verse nine, who had previously practiced magic. This is the counterpoint to signs. You know, Philip is doing signs that point to Jesus. Simon was doing magic that pointed to himself in that same city. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. His signs, his magic was pointing to who? Himself. Saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Notice the same words are being said about both Simon and Philip. To him, because for a long time he had amazed them, there it is again, with his magic. But when they believed Philip and he preached good news about the kingdom as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself, this magician, believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed by Jesus? No by the signs and miracles. You see, Luke sets up this contrast between these two men. They're similar, but they're opposite. Both Philip and Simon, it says, amazed people. People paid attention to both of them. Both Philip and Simon do works that are considered great. Philip does signs. Simon does magic. But this mirror image of these two men is marked by a stark contrast. Did you notice the difference between the two of them? Simon's works and message spotlight who? Himself. He shows himself as great. The magic points to him as great. Verse nine. But Philip's works and message spotlight who? Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is at the center. You see, in the story of Stephen's murder, his accusers set themselves up as clearly against Christ. They're like, this message about Jesus, he, we are against it and we're willing to kill Stephen because we are against Christ. But here, we have a little bit more of a nuanced um, problem in these budding believers. With Simon, we see, some, see someone who is setting himself not up against Christ, but perhaps setting himself up as a false Christ. Not against Christ, but a false Christ. He's doing miraculous works, but with the intent of setting himself up as somebody great. Perhaps even wanting to step into what the Samaritans may have had as a conception of Messiah. He's like, you know, the Jews are talking about this Messiah, Jesus, and that's for the Jews in Jerusalem, but you know, Samaria might need someone to think is the Messiah too, so I wonder if I could slip into that space and become a Samaritan Messiah. It's kind of what it looks like here to me. I want to tell you to beware of those teaching whose teaching and works promote themselves. This is a sign of a false gospel and a preaching of a false Christ. A sign, not the only, but a sign of genuine obedience to the mission and genuine obedience to Jesus is humble focus on Jesus. Leaders that promote themselves, even if they're doing it with scripture, who draw attention to themselves and it's about them, and I pray that I'm never one. This is not a sign of obedience to the mission. This is a sign of false Christ. It's a sign of false teaching. If you use scripture and use your platform to draw attention to yourself rather than Christ. Philip's intent was to show the greatness of Jesus, not himself. And you, you know, the people of Samaria, they respond with faith obedience, and then they get baptized. And there's joy in the city because Philip is pointing to Jesus. 
I, just a quick aside, does it make you wonder, like, Philip preaches this gospel and the people of Samaria are so ready to believe it. They're there for it. They are right. Like as soon as Philip is preaching this, they see it and they believe and they're baptized. Why? This is a little bit of conjecture, but I don't think it's a stretch at all. This isn't the first time the gospel has come to Samaria, is it? If you read in John chapter four, Jesus and his disciples travel through Samaria. Jesus says, go get some food. He stops at a well and he talks to this woman, a Samaritan woman who's coming to the well at the heat of the day because she doesn't want to see anyone because she's ashamed of her life. And Jesus speaks to her lovingly and truthfully. And she goes back to her town and she says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And she believes in Jesus and the town believes in Jesus. This is the same region where Jesus had stopped at the well. Jesus has already made inroads here. And so because of a woman whose name we don't even know, an average woman who was not proud of her life, not proud of her decisions, became the first missionary to this place. And now when Philip comes, they're ready to hear it. Jesus planted the gospel in Samaria. The Samaritan woman, whose name we don't even know, watered it, and Philip, a common but faithful follower of Jesus, later came and brought an even greater harvest. This is so important. Please lean in and get this. Jesus' mission will be accomplished by a kingdom of obedient, spirit-filled priests, not professionals. The kingdom of Jesus will expand not because pastors, professional Christians, are doing what they're doing. The kingdom of Jesus, the mission of Jesus will be accomplished because you and I, we obey Jesus, all of us. The days of bring your friends to church and let the professionals, whatever that means, let the pastors do the work, those days need to be laid to rest. We've been there for far too long. That is not obeying Jesus' command to make disciples. He didn't say pastors or people who work at churches as if that was even a thing when Jesus started this. People who work at churches. He did not say pastors accomplished a mission. He said, you all, go and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. This is a command for every person who would call Jesus their king. You and me, we are the priests who are called out to go into where we live, bringing the gospel of Jesus and watching God bring in the harvest. This is not to discourage you from inviting friends to church. Don't get me wrong. It's just to encourage you that nine times out of 10, that is not how the Holy Spirit is gonna move in their lives, by just bringing them to church. Most of your friends who don't know Jesus don't care what's happening here. It's completely irrelevant to them. But if you love them and you care for them and you have the message of Jesus for them, it matters because they know you care. He's going to do what he's going to do through your love and your testimony about Jesus. In scripture, we see the kingdom of Jesus expand, not when people congregate in, but when people obediently move out. That's the pattern of scripture all over. Coming in together and gathering is really important, but God really expands his kingdom work when we go out, when we scatter and so we need to have rhythms of gathering and scattering, not just gathering. Believers gathering is so important, but this is not mainly where we see more people becoming disciples of Jesus. It's when we scatter together as a family that Jesus' kingdom expands. And so the fact that we are sent out means we need to take a moment and consider some of the values and warnings that Luke writes into this chapter here about our mission. Read on in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, two apostles, 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, the Samaritans, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon, the magician, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter has a very calm answer for him, doesn't he? Not really. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He says, you pray, and you ask that you may be forgiven, and that the intent of your heart would be changed. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. This is a hyperlinking back to the Old Testament. And in the bond of iniquity, another hyperlink back to the Old Testament. And Simon answered, the magician answered, Peter, you pray for me that the Lord, to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What does Peter tell him to do? He says, Simon, you pray and ask the Lord to change your heart and forgive you. And Simon's answer is, no, Peter, you pray and ask that the bad stuff won't happen. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. I think this is Peter and John for sure. Maybe Philip went back to Jerusalem with them. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So on their way back to Jerusalem, we now see these Jewish men, Peter and John, preaching to Samaritans all the way back. I love this. Hearing about the work of God in Samaria, the church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to support the work there. They didn't say, oh, you guys are too important. You're apostles. Stay in here in Jerusalem because work needs to be done there. They said, no, no. Philip, a work is being done and the, the, the gospel is expanding and he needs help. He needs there to be an emboldening there. You guys go. And so Peter and John go. I just love the working together that we see there. I love that it's family. I love that it's not, well, that's Philip's deal. No, we'll go and we'll support. The church didn't want Philip to run solo, but wanted to support him, advise him, and shore it up the work that he was doing with a team. And then arriving, the apostles find that the Holy Spirit hasn't yet fallen on them. And this causes some confusion because it's like, well, I thought like when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells you, and that is true. So what's happening here? Why is it that these people believe, but the Holy Spirit hasn't yet fallen on them. In the book of Acts, there seems to be at least a few different kinds of sequences in which the Holy Spirit arrives to believers. It's not yet to the place of a normative time. This is a transitional phase, it seems like. In Acts 2, the original believers are praying, and he comes. Jesus had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends, and he says, wait for me until the Holy Spirit comes. So these are believers. These are people who are disciples of Jesus. They're waiting, and they're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends. Later in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. He calls the people to believe, then be baptized, and then receive the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 8, the people believe, and they're baptized, but they're not filled with the Spirit until the apostles pray and lay hands on them. Interesting. In Acts 9, the very next chapter, Saul is converted. He's repenting. He's in this process of repentance. And Ananias, a non-apostle, just a disciple there where he is, comes to lay hands on Paul to receive the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts 10, Peter is preaching to the first full Gentile group that's going to be reached at Cornelius' house. And while Peter is in the middle of preaching, the Holy Spirit fills these Gentiles And after that, they get baptized. Do you see there's all different sequences that are happening here in the book of Acts. You may want it to fit all in one like nice sequence. It doesn't. Okay, it just doesn't. And I'm not gonna argue with scripture. But in Acts, I don't think we see a normative sequence establishing like belief, Holy Spirit fills you, baptism. I don't think we see that kind of normative sequence yet. Rather, we see a sequence that demands that the original apostles be there to bare minimum observe it. And here's why I think that. 
it seems likely that this delay in receiving the Spirit was not normative, but rather for the sake of confirmation. To these Jewish apostles, that this mission, this calling, and this filling of the Holy Spirit was truly for all peoples and happening in all peoples, even Samaritans and Gentiles. This delayed giving of the Holy Spirit is so these Jewish leaders would lean into the global mission. They needed to see God working and filling these Gentiles with the Holy Spirit so they wouldn't think this is still just a Jew thing. This is just for the Jews. I think this is a time where God was wanting to show them over and over and over again. I am here for all the peoples of the world to know Jesus. And so I think he wants them to see it with their own eyes. I could be wrong about that, but I do think that's a very strong argument. Another possible issue is that the Samaritan believers had only, it says this, had only been baptized in Jesus' name, not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit like Jesus had commanded. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it may be that God is delaying on this outpouring of the Spirit for a little bit of a correctional thing and what Philip is doing, and to show the apostles and Philip and those who were in the church, it's really important that you be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That might be part of it. This seems to be confirmed in Acts chapter 19 with with Paul in Ephesus. But nevertheless, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, and Simon, the magician, sees this happen, and he's amazed by the outcome of people being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting that back up in verse 13, Luke connects, Luke connects Simon's belief in baptism and his amazement to seeing the signs that Philip performed. It doesn't ladder up to Jesus, just he sees the signs and is like, okay, I'll believe and I'll be baptized. It puts a little bit like of a twinge in there, like, why is he doing this? Why is he, quote, believing? Why is he being baptized? What's his motive? With the other Samaritans, the belief, the amazement, and the joy ladder up to Philip's proclamation of Jesus, but not Simon's. Simon's is I'm seeing some really cool stuff happening. I'm amazed and I want it. Perhaps this gives us a glimpse into what Simon was believing and actually after, not Jesus himself, but the powers that he might gain through him. Remember, he's a magician. He makes his living by doing works and signs. And so in my estimation, Simon sees this ability to give the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands as an opportunity to increase his earning potential. Magicians in those days earned their living by selling spells and charms and incantations. And so Simon offers to buy the ability to fill people with the Holy Spirit completely unconnected from Jesus or the mission. It's just, I want to do cool things so I can make a living. I think that's what this is saying. I could be wrong again. Another possibility, and this is, I think, even worse, is that Simon, with his eye on the goal of possibly being seen as a Samaritan Messiah, he sees this ability of being able to give people the Holy Spirit as a necessary gift to complete the picture of I'm the Samaritan Messiah. If I can do great works and signs that I've already been amazing people with, if I can round it out with, and then I lay my hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, perhaps they'll think I'm even greater than they thought at first. And perhaps I can step into a role as a false Messiah. But as Simon will learn, The gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit are not commodities or products. They are gifts. No preacher who tries to sell you a magic cloth or ointment and says, just sleep with this under your pillow, they can't sell you the Holy Spirit. They can't give you the Holy Spirit or the life you've always wanted. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. He is not to be sold or marketed as a product. The Holy Spirit is God and God is not bought. When you see a preacher or a religious leader seeking to or becoming rich by way of his message, run the other way. The gospel is not a means to wealth. 
It is the gift of God. So Peter reacts very strongly. He, he, he piles on these hyperlinks to the Old Testament using these key phrases that people might have known from the Old Testament, showing that like the pagans of old, Simon has evil intentions to glorify and enrich himself at the expense of the poor and powerless. Because what's he going to do with these powers? He's going to wow people. And people who don't have the money are going to give it to him so that they can get the wow. And they're going to be left poor and powerless because it's not God working. That's unjust. It's evil. It's a great injustice. Read Isaiah 58 for a little bit of context on that if you want to later today. And this brings up a really important point, folks. What you do is very important, but why you do it is even more important. Our motives matter. Our motives matter. Yes, obey, but obey for the right reasons. The desire for power and wealth is corrosive. The gospel of Jesus does not give its people worldly, flesh-like power. It's a different kind of power. And if we're seeking to get power in this world by way of force and by way of majority, and by way of voting blocks because of the gospel and because we're Christians and we'll block together and we will vote for people and if you don't, we don't like you, we're gonna pull back from voting for you and using power and manipulation that way, if that's how we are operating, we are off the plot. The gift of God is not to be used to manipulate power for yourself. The power and influence God gives us is to be used for the sake of others. And it's not a flesh power. It is not a worldly dominating power. It is a power empowered by God with the intention of love for the sake of others. There's a difference. Why we do things matters. As we obey Jesus' mission to make disciples, we must be checking our motives. Across the world, we've seen Christian leader after Christian leader after Christian leader fall because of the slow fade of motives. And they might have started very genuine. But how many more Christian leaders do we need to see gain power and authority and influence and get to this place of a pinnacle where they're famous and everyone looks up to them and they're so great, but then we find out what they've been doing behind closed doors. How many times do we have to go through this before we all realize that we're all faulted? No one is the hero of the story except for Jesus. And we are not immune. I am not immune. I'm not casting stones. None of us are immune to this. Not a one. This is what happens when our influence outpaces our character. When our influence, those that we have influence with, grows beyond the capacity that my character can handle. A prayer that we've prayed for a while in the leadership team of this church is God, don't ever let our influence outpace our character. I don't know how many people, I or Matt, the rest of the team, I don't know how many people that we're capable of having good character and still leading, but God, don't ever give us more. If that means more seats are empty, great. Because the mission of Jesus Christ will not be accomplished by professional people with a selfish agenda, but by humble, regular people, obedient and filled with the Holy Spirit, who want to see nothing more or less than King Jesus being worshipped. Seek to be that kind of person. 
Everyone's telling you how important it is for you to be famous and influential and have likes and followers, whatever you call it, on social media. I don't have social media. But whatever you call it, everyone's telling you how important it is to be influential, to be an influencer. It's, they're full of it. I can't handle that. You can't handle that. We can't handle these platforms that the world's wanting to put us on. We can handle the five or six or 10 or 20 people God's put around us. And in humility, love them. Seek to be that kind of person. Verse 26. Now, so this is after the Samaritans have been reached. They've moved back down through Jerusalem. And now an angel of the Lord, an angel shows up to Philip. And he says, rise up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So he rose and went. See the immediate obedience? And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a man who had been castrated for his line of work. A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit, now the Holy Spirit says to Philip, an angel tells him to go down the road, now the Holy Spirit says to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian man said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that was, he was reading was this. Total coincidence. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. What a coincidence. That's exactly the passage that this man was reading when, the, when Philip's life intersected with his. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? Talk about the Holy Spirit giving Philip a softball. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip Away, and the eunuch saw him no more. He disappeared and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip shows up at Azotus. And he, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, because what else was he going to do? If we zoom out from this passage and look at chapters 7 and 8, Stephen and Philip together, we can see a theme that. Luke is trying to highlight. In chapter seven, with Stephen's sham trial and execution, we see in Stephen's words and his actions an echo of Jesus's words and actions on the cross, don't we? There's a lot of echoes there in Stephen's stories about Jesus on the cross. But in chapter eight, this is so cool, with Philip's story here with the Ethiopian, we see Philip's words and actions as an echo of Jesus's post-resurrection conversation with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? After Jesus's resurrection, he shows up on this road where these two disciples are walking along. They don't recognize him for some reason. Jesus was like, I don't know, but he, they didn't recognize him. He's walking along. They're talking about all the things that have just happened about Jesus and the scriptures and what's happening. We thought he was gonna be the Messiah, but then he's, he died and we don't know what's happening. And Jesus does what? He opens the scriptures to them and, and, and shows them how it all links to this Messiah that was gonna come, Jesus. And they say, come, they invite him to come and eat. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch says, come sit in my chariot. And as they sit down and eat and Jesus prays and breaks bread, their eyes are open. They say, oh, it's Jesus. Poof, he's gone. Remind you of anything we just read? So cool. Why? 
Why is Luke mapping the stories of Jesus now or mapping the stories of Stephen and Philip onto the stories of Jesus during the cross and his post-resurrection? It's because Luke envisions Jesus' church following in his footsteps, doing the things he did and finishing his mission. He's saying, see, these ordinary people are doing the things that Jesus did and that is what you all are called to. Now zoom back in to this story with Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. The unique details of this passage with the Samaritans and now with the Ethiopian man, it has this distinct flavor about expansion and inclusion. The gospel expanding and people who were once outside the bounds being included. The Holy Spirit is leading the church to step outside of the context that it was born in and to bring this gospel to ethnicities that they had always considered as outsiders. It's beautiful. Samaritans, as we know, were seen by Jews as less than because of their mixed heritage. And yet, these Samaritans respond to Jesus and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not excluded because of their outsider status with the Jews. And then you have this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a man who's doubly an outsider because he's fully Gentile and he's castrated before his line of work. So he's fully Gentile. Now Gentiles could convert to Judaism and they would be welcomed in, but not someone who had been castrated. It was against the rules. So even though this Ethiopian eunuch trusts the scriptures, reads the scriptures, seems to believe in the God of the Bible, of the Old Testament, he's never been included. He couldn't be. He's been seeking this God, but always been an outsider. He seems to be a worshiper or at least an admirer of the Jewish God, Yahweh. But he would have been prohibited from ever going past the court of the Gentiles, maybe not even allowed to be in the court of the Gentiles because of his castration. And yet, here's an angel and the Holy Spirit leading Philip by the hand to have an encounter with just this one man. And the man happens to be reading Isaiah 20 or 53. Did you see what Isaiah 53 said? It is like a direct prophecy about the suffering servant of God, Jesus. And Philip, because he knows the scriptures well, is able to trace the lines from that scripture to Jesus himself. And the man believes. God sent Philip across Israel for one man a Gentile, eunuch, an outsider, fully an outsider. God used extravagant means and also a prepared and willing disciple to reach this one man from the ends of the earth. And then this man asks, I think, a very sincere question. I don't think he's like, hey, why don't I get baptized? I think he asks it in this specific way. What prevents me from being baptized? This man's used to being prevented. He's being used to being told no. You can worship our God, that's fine, but you can't come in. You can read the scriptures, but you're not, you're not included. So he says, Philip, I've been on the outside of Judaism for a long time trying to get in, and you tell me that now there's this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and I believe in him. But Philip, am I still on the outside? Is there anything preventing me from being included? Philip baptizes him. God's answer is this. There's nothing, not a thing in the world preventing you from being included in my kingdom. That's the gospel. This is a powerful statement of God's intentions and inclusion for all people who would repent, trust, and follow Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is for all who would believe. Never count anyone out. We dismiss the possibility of people coming to know Jesus all the time because they're not like us or they vote differently than us or they live in a different part of town than us 
or sometimes, sadly, they're a different skin color than us or come from a different part of the world from us. And God is just putting a completely huge kibosh on that type of thinking. Never count anyone out. There are two important things if you want to be used by God. Willingness and readiness. Willingness and readiness. Are you willing to leave the days of my church will accomplish the mission behind? Are you willing to leave the days of I'll be a spectator and I'll give a little money and I'll show up on Sundays sometimes, but we'll let the professionals do the work? I'm not saying everyone's there. That's not true at all. But hey, a lot of us have been. Are you willing to leave those days behind? Are you willing to actually do the work of the mission yourself? Are you actually willing to be the messenger yourself? Are you willing to accomplish Jesus' mission at any cost? What if Jesus came to you and like the rich young ruler said, yes, you can follow me, if first you sell all your belongings, give it to the poor, have nothing left and follow me. Are you willing? Am I willing? I need to pose that question to you, but you need to pose that question to me. Because me standing up here doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean I obey Jesus any more than anyone else, right? Maybe I should stand down there. Maybe I should stand back there because I've disobeyed Jesus a ton. There've been tons of times where I say, Jesus, I'll follow you this far, no further. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I won't do that. That, that, and that I'll do, but I won't do that. Am I willing, but also am I ready? When you do obey, are you ready? Do you know how to prepare? Do you know what the scriptures say? Have you spent enough time so that if you came across someone and scripture was brought to bear, you could trace those lines to Jesus? You say, I thought that's what people who go to seminary are supposed to know. That's our calling. You don't have to be a Bible expert at all, at all. I'm not a Bible expert. You're not a Bible expert, fine. But do we know our Bible? Do we know the scriptures? Are we acquainted with them? Do you know how to hear the Holy Spirit's voice so that you can be guided each step along the way because every situation is different? What if someone came up to you and said, you know, you are different. Why are you different? Would you know what to say? Would you know and would you be so in tune with the Holy Spirit because you already spent time with Jesus that day? You're already with him. He's already with you. You don't have to send up a Hail Mary. Oh God, please help me right now because I haven't connected with you at all. I've been sinning. I've been doing all types of stuff but now this person wants to hear the gospel and I don't know what to say. Now, will he be faithful in that moment? Yes. But how much better would it be if you had already spent a half hour, hour, hour and a half, two hours, you name it, with Jesus that day, so close to him, so able to hear his voice that when he calls on you, he's right there with you and you're like, yes, I, I know why I'm different, but it's not me. Meet Jesus. Are you willing to do what it takes to be ready? Do you know who you'll be on mission with? Because this is not a solo sport. Do you know who your team is? Do you know who the people are that are gonna be your crew to finish this mission? So how do I prepare myself for the mission? I don't think this is everything, but I think this is a big part of it. You need to draw near to Jesus. You need to know the scriptures. You need to live with God's family. Live with, not just meet up every once in a while, but do life with God's family and obey the Holy Spirit when he calls. Am I close enough to Jesus so that when I hear his voice, I read scripture, I can understand it, and I can apply it to not only my own life, but I can relay the truth of it to people who might ask and show Jesus in it? Am I in community or in family with God's people so that when there is someone who responds to the gospel, I have a family to bring them to? and a family that encourages me and sends me out. And when God calls, am I so close to him, and am I so with him, and am I so surrendered to him that when the Holy Spirit prompts me, I will obey? 
If those aren't true, we've got some work to do to prepare ourselves to be part of the mission of Jesus. He'll use us even when we're not ready. Don't get me wrong. But we have to prepare ourselves. Are you willing? Are you prepared? Looking at that list of things I just said, it's disappeared now, but looking at that list, you might be thinking the same thing as me. All those things seem, Travis, like they take a lot of time. Anyone feeling that? You're right. They do take time. They don't happen overnight. But I have time to watch YouTube. I'm not guilting anyone here. I'm just, listen, can, we, can I just be real? Can, that was a question. Can I be real? I have time to watch YouTube. You have time to watch Netflix, Disney Plus, ESPN. You have time to educate yourself. You have time to go to work. You have time to eat. You have time to entertain yourself up the wazoo. But I don't have time for the mission of Jesus, the reason I'm on this earth. Hey, hey, let's stop making excuses, okay? Can we agree? Stop making excuses. I know you're busy. I'm busy. Philip was busy. Stephen was real busy. There's a reason you're here on earth and it's not Netflix and it's not YouTube and it's not sleep. It's not eating and it's not vacations. You are here on earth to obey Jesus and accomplish his mission. You have time. And if you don't, cut something out of your life. But that's hard. If anyone would follow after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me. Let's stop making excuses. I'm sorry if that feels condemning. It's not. Please, I'm preaching to myself. Church has been asleep for far too long. We've got to wake up. We've got to do this. We have some leaders in our lives, the leadership team that are teaching us about disciple making and one of the things they say is go slow to go fast. This does take time. Sometimes we gotta slow it down and get to the basics of being with Jesus, reading his word, spending time in prayer, learning to listen to his Holy Spirit, being together as a family of believers to be sent out. It takes time. Sometimes we gotta slow it down so that then the gospel can move out fast. But there's a difference between going slow and procrastinating procrastination is trusting future you to start what you need to start. But here's the problem with that. If present you is not willing to start, present you will turn into future you. And future you will not be trustworthy to start because nothing has changed. Get it? We may need to go slow to go fast, but the operative word is go, start, now, not tomorrow. If you haven't spent time with Jesus yet today, if you haven't been time in prayer and his word today, when you go home, before you eat, spend time with Jesus. Start now. Don't wait. I'm not, oh, hear my heart. This isn't legalism. This is not legalism. It's what do you want most? Do it first. Start now. You may need to go slow, but go. Deep time with Jesus and his word every day. Learning to hear his voice and obeying it. Being part of a gospel family, a small group, a home group, a discipleship group, a Bible study, whatever you want to call it. But the point is to be encouraged and prepared and sent out from the mission where you're at. If your home group is just a holy huddle of people who get together and talk about life and don't do anything else, that needs to change. Our small groups, our home groups, our Bible studies are not just to fill our heads with knowledge or just to pray for each other, though that's important. We should be praying for each other, caring for each other. Our home groups, our small groups, our little families need to be sending agents. Where we come together, we're encouraged. We are filled together with the Holy Spirit and his word, and then we are sent out. And then next week when we come back together, we check on each other. Did you carry the mission to the lost? 
accountability. That's what our families need to be about. And if that's not what your small group is like, change it today. Not change your small group. Change the way your small group is. Change the way your discipleship group is. Change the way your Bible study is. Because a Bible study, you can fill yourself with a bunch of knowledge, bunch of knowledge, bunch of knowledge, and no one ever goes to heaven because they didn't hear it from you. We have got to utterly turn upside down our patterns in this life for the sake of Jesus' mission. Speaking on that very issue of those small group, those families that we come together with, there need to be far more in this church people who are connected into a small group, a discipleship group, a home group, call it what you weigh. And those groups need facilitators, those groups need leaders. That might be the right next step for you. That might be the right next obedience for you. You can like, I can have people in my house. I can ask some questions. I can keep people accountable. I can host people. That might be your next right step to helping the mission move forward. If that's you, Pastor Chris is gonna be over in the Welcome Center afterwards and, and you may need to go talk to him and have a conversation saying, you know, I think I need to help the mission move forward by being a leader of one of these little outposts of the kingdom that we encourage each other and send each other out. Maybe that's you. If that's you, go and talk to him. He'll be in the, he'll be in the Welcome Center after this. I also wanna tell you about something that I think will majorly inspire your heart for the mission of Jesus this week. This week is Global Homecoming Week. Every one of our global staff is home this week. All the people that we've sent out, that you know, some call missionaries, we call them global staff, same thing. They're all here this week for some rest, for some care, but also to share what's happening on the front lines. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night, we have a few of them each one of those nights sharing what God's been up to in the places where they're doing ministry out in the world. We'd love for you to come and hear that, be part of that, and pray with them. All that information's on our website, cpmodesto.org. You can either click on the Global Homecoming link, or you can, click on, you can just go to cpmodesto.org slash summer for info on like the times and meeting places for those meetings. Not only that, but next Sunday, we're having one big service. And all y'all are gonna be able to come at the nine o'clock, and don't come at 1045, you'll miss it. Nine o'clock, all of us are gonna come together in one room. We're gonna celebrate what God is doing through our global staff. Also, we're gonna hear back from all the, remember all those groups that we sent out to do mission trips? We had like Santa Marta, we had Cambodia, Mexico, Peru, San Francisco. We're gonna hear back from them and what God did on those trips. Don't miss next week, nine o'clock. 10.45? No, nine o'clock in this building, one big service. And we're gonna just be enjoying that together. Bring your kids in here. There will not be CPK. Bring them in here. We're just gonna have a great big time. And instead of right after the service, having a community time out there like we normally do, we're gonna push pause on it for a few hours and come back together tomorrow, or sorry, next Sunday at 6 p.m. Need to RSVP for this, by the way. But we're gonna have a barbecue, y'all, a big church barbecue. We're gonna uh, eat together and then we're gonna hear more stories from the front line um, and some of the stuff that we can't talk about uh, here on a stage that's being filmed. Um, we would invite you to come to all that. God is moving. God loves our church. God loves you, and he wants to use you, amen? These are the things we do, and I know I just said, hey, stop coming to church all the time and go out there, but hey, come to church. This is last, <laughs> next, next week, because this is how we gather and encourage each other to go out and be inspired to finish the mission. Would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray. Our Father in heaven, you have a mission for us and you love us and you've included us and you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we can finish the work. Jesus, we want you to return and we know you're not gonna return until the work is done. So fill us, Holy Spirit, to finish the work, to obey you, to be close to Jesus, to listen to our Father, to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. Jesus, do it in us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.